Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Archaeology's never saved any lives, but it's taken many. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 10. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're discussing the Koso Artifact. What is the Koso Artifact? Is it a geode? Is it even a rock? If it's not those, what is it? We'll be examining the origin stories and the current myths around the Koso Artifact. Get ready to think critically. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host Sarah and I'm here with my co-host Ken Fader. Hi there Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How's it going up there? It's good. Man, it is spring. We've got 70 degrees on tap for tomorrow. It's been raining a bunch, but you know, the April showers bring May flowers, all that good stuff. So yeah, things are great. And um starting to get excited about field school coming up in June. So this, What are you guys doing for field school? We are we're returning to a site. It's a almost 3,000-year-old steatite quarry. So up here, we don't get ceramics until about 3,000 years ago, native ceramics. And before right. that, along with, with almost certainly with, with um, splint baskets and uh, bark containers, uh, in some places that are especially lucky, we've got soapstone. We have steatite, this soft rock that can be easily carved with um, with most of the other stones that we have in this neck of the woods. And where that soapstone was available, the native folks um, harvested it in these, in these large bedrock exposures. They literally cut pieces of soapstone out and formed them into bowls and ladles and platters and and other kinds of containers. And soapstone is a really good material for cooking because it's a, it retains heat very well. And up until about 3,000 years ago, it was a real significant resource. And then what happens is, you know, some some bozo walks in and says, hey, you know what? We don't need your soapstone anymore. We've got clay, ceramics. And then the, the, the industry kind of disappears. And we're right at the site we are at where there are actually half-finished bowls in place in the bedrock. Uh, it's really cool. And the tools that were you being used to isolate these these chunks of, of steatite to remove them and then carve them into bowls. Those tools are right there at the site. And we have radiocarbon dates. We have some charcoal at the site that put it at about 2850 BP. So very exciting. We'll be back there this summer with a crew of students. Cool. That does sound like a lot of fun. And it sounds really cool too. I like, I, I've seen soapstone carved like animals and stuff, but I've never seen any actual, we don't get that down here. Uh -huh, or right. We don't get that in Indiana. So. I guess, is your yeah. spring weird like Michigan spring though? I mean, because we've we had a I want to say we got up to like fifty today, and it was in the morning we had hail, and then in the afternoon we had slightly frozen rain, and then in the evening we had real rain. 
Yeah. So yeah, well, I, I don't know what's going on. Our springs are pretty weird. Mark Twain lived in Hartford, and he's—I will misquote him now—but he said something to the effect <laughs> that if you don't if you don't like the weather in New England, just wait five minutes because it just yeah. changes so much from literally from minute to minute. Where I mean, today the warmest part of the day was around four o'clock or five o'clock, and we started off really cold and nasty in the morning. So we have bizarre weather. Every year, every year, people go, "Wow, the weather is so weird here this year." And you say, "Yeah, you said that last year. You said that the year before, and you'll be saying that every year you live in New England because it is. It's it's very unpredictable." Well, that's good to know. I mean, I was like, "Go home, spring. You're drunk," but <laughs> it, it is what it is. Yeah. So today we are going to talk about the Coso artifact. It's a great artifact to talk about, not just because it's been thoroughly debunked, but because it also lets us talk about um, misinterpretation of natural processes, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good case study in um, – I'm sure, you, Sarah, you've heard the term upart. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great word. So it's a great word. I mean, it's a neologism. It's a brand, it's a brand new word like 30 years ago. And it's O-O-P, art, art for artifact. And the O-O-P is out of place. So yeah. these artifacts are, and this is the, the fringe folks say, these parts completely turn upside down the standard archaeological chronologies because these things are found in places and in stratigraphic levels where they simply don't conform to the you know conservative archaeological interpretation of the past. And the Koso artifact is a, is a wonderful test case because it's exactly what's being claimed. We'll talk about that specifically. And it's also because it's just so bloody lame. I mean, you really kind of have to be <laughs> goofy to, to accept what the Kofo, what the, that the Koso artifact somehow um, reflects some incredibly sophisticated technology from, I don't know, before or immediately after Noah's flood, depending on, on which source you read. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really like about the Koso artifact is it kind of touches on a couple different friend, fringe groups right. all at the same time. Um, and and I, I think it's interesting how each group tries to use it as their own right. kind of evidence. Um, but just to give some people some background on what we're talking about, in case you don't know what the Koso artifact is... Uh, so the background is, is in February of 1961, there were three uh, amateur geologists, uh, Wallace Lance, Virginia Maxey, and Michael Mikesell. And they were, they owned a rock shop and they would frequently go and look for rocks in the California area that they could take home rocks and geodes that they could take back to their store sure. and sell them. Sure. And so on this particular day, <coughs> they were out and one of the individuals found a kind of abnormal looking geode. Uh, he picked it up, he put it back into the bag. They all took it back to their to workshop. Nobody thought anything about it until the next day when Mike Mikesell claims that he ruined a brand new diamond bladed saw while trying to cut the specimen in half. And once he did finally get it open, he noticed that there was a perfect circular section of hard white material that appeared to be porcelain. And in the center of the porcelain was a cylinder that was two, that was a two millimeter shaft of bright metal, which responded to a magnet. There you go. And there's a great, there's a couple great pictures of them out there. There's a, a nice colored one that shows, I mean, as soon as you look at it, 
if you've ever seen a concretion or the way concretion grows around iron objects, I mean, you you know instantly what you're looking at for sure right? because you've you've got that soft white cortex and then the rust are on the inside mm -hmm. of that, and then you can see the. The, the ceramic or the porcelain and the little metal bit that's in the center of it. And it, and it does look kind of weird. It kind of looks like a hard-boiled egg, honestly. <laughs> there you go. It also looks nothing like a geode. Right. I mean, most, so, I'm sure everybody who listens to the podcast has gone to rock shops or has seen yes. geodes. I think, I, I'm sure I have one here someplace. They're really pretty. They cut them in half. They polish them up. They've got this gorgeous rock on the inside. Uh, it's all sparkly. And you, you know a geode when you see one. Certainly, right. the photographs that I've seen of the Koso artifact, man, that ain't no geode. You don't need no. a geologist to know that's not what it is. Well, it's funny you should mention an actual geologist because there is a uh, – Miss Maxey claims that she took this geode at one point to a educated geologist mm -hmm. who is unnamed and that that particular geologist somehow was able to date – the geode and the artifact to be 500,000 years old. And it doesn't really say how he did it. It doesn't really say why he thought it was that old. I mean, we know he's not dating the rock itself because that would have given him a billion year age if it had actually been rock, which it is not. Right. So I'm like, who is this geologist? The fact that he is unnamed makes me question if it was ever actually taken to a geologist or if people just randomly assigned an age to it. Well, what, what you and just described, Sarah, is is a wonderful, perfect, and diagnostic of so much of fringe archaeology. You've got an right. unnamed geologist who ostensibly looked at this and through some completely um, unreported process came up with a date for it. Well, you know... Uh, that's if you if you accept that as science, you know I got some swampland in Florida that I'd like you to see, and I've got an expert who says it's perfectly good for for development because that's right. that's, that's about the equivalent. That's the level of of, uh, of of certainty that anybody should have. An unnamed geologist using some heretofore unknown technique has come up with it, has pulled a number out of the hat and said it's half a million years old. Um, you ain't getting that published in in Science Magazine. Well, and that's the other end of it. If this if this was a real geologist and he really did find an artifact inside of a geode that was five hundred thousand years old, there would be an uproar. That there's no way the guy would be like, oh yeah, this is five hundred thousand years old. Go on your merry way. I mean, that's a significant and very odd thing. I mean, it would be if it were real. You would. I would expect that person, that geologist who want to study said object, oh, absolutely. possibly try to find more of said object and possibly even write maybe a paper about it, even if it was just, you know, a couple a couple paragraphs about, hey, I found this thing. It's weird. But there's none of that. And, you know, this is I just want to want to talk about, like, you know, a sidebar here. Um, people need to understand that in terms of a legal definition you know, you can't, I cannot call myself a medical doctor and do medical doctoring. That would be against the law. Anybody can have cards drawn up saying geologist or archaeologist. And there is no, I mean, if you're working for a federal, say, cultural resource management project, they have rules about who they, who can claim to be an archaeologist. But anybody else in the world can put up a shingle outside of their house and say, I'm an archaeologist. I'm a geologist. And 
they don't have to have a de degree. They never. They don't have to have any experience. There's no legal definition, and there's no general legal definition for an archaeologist or a geologist. I have. I have, I've actually encountered people who have cards that say. I had a, a guy uh, talk to me about some geological feature he was interested in, and he had a card that said he was an archaeologist. By the way, he spelled archaeology wrong. But that's okay. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. But but the deal was, you know, have you taken any archaeology courses? No. Do you have a degree in archaeology? No. Have you written a PhD thesis? No. Well, why do you call yourself an archaeologist? Well, I like to find artifacts and I dig outside. Um, so understand that that merely because somebody says I took this to a geologist doesn't mean anything. Uh -huh. Unless that person's willing to put their name on it. Right. Put that, your name. What's your institutional affiliation? Are you at a museum? Are you at a university? Are you in private practice as a geologist? And where did you get your degree? And now tell us, write a paper about how precisely you determine the age of this artifact. Then we'll listen. That's great. That's wonderful. But merely an, an anonymous geologist saying, oh, it's really stinking old, it, you know, that, that, is, that is less than worthless. It's also incredibly convenient. Like you said, it, it, it's a hallmark of, I don't want to say fraud stories, but it is a, a hallmark of fringe stories. Oh, sure. Where you have, you know, the unnamed expert. Yeah. I mean, we, we saw this with, um, well, we saw how this kind of worked uh, against Dr. Hammer that we've mentioned in a previous podcast. Right, yeah, yeah. When we were discussing the, the genetic disc. They, they don't want to use people with a name like Dr. Hammer, because I can find Dr. Hammer. I can talk to her. Right. I can ask her about her, how, what she did with the genetic disc. I can't find whoever this right. geologist person is because I don't know who this geologist person is. Right. So, I so mean, there's no way to question him. Right. So the bottom line here is we can, we can eliminate that bit of data because there is no, there's nothing there. There's, there's right. less than nothing there. So, so we do not have any, we don't have a, a trained geologist who has told us this is how old it is and this is how I determined it. So that's that that piece of information is worthless. So right. now what we've got left is, well, what the hell does this thing look like and why is it peculiar? So a little bit more about the artifact itself. I mean, like I said, it was discovered by uh, people who sell rocks uh, to take to their, their shop in California right. to sell it there. It got cut in half. Um, I don't know how hard porcelain is, but I'm. I know how hard metal can be, and I'm sure that probably did screw up his diamonds, his diamond saw. But I mean, I, I did some metal work and or uh, some jewelry work in high school, so of course that makes me an expert. But I mean, <laughs> I know that you can cut porcelain. It is depending on how hard baked it is, does kind of make it a little bit harder than some things. But I'm just kind of like a. A diamond, a diamond saw, really? A diamond saw couldn't go through it. And, and you know, and once again, Sarah, we're we're kind of trapped here with a just so story. So some right. guy said it really did a number on his diamond saw. Can you show us your diamond saw? Um, can you show us exactly what damage was done to your diamond saw? And, and again, that that bit of the story, unfortunately, is not admissible in court unless. You provide us with that diamond saw, let somebody take a look at it and and absolutely diagnose it as, yes, this has been damaged severely by running into something exceptionally hard. Otherwise, right. again, it's just, it's a nice, it's a it's like those stories people tell around campfires at night. It's cool, it's scary, but 
where's the evidence? Where is the physical evidence to back it up? We don't have it. This is the point I'm making. Yeah. So the, to further the investigation into the coastal artifact, um, there's one other per- the, the coastal artifact has been well, nobody knows where it is now. It's conveniently been lost. Um, <laughs> Which again, as these- like you said, it's another hallmark. Well, you know, we have a number of, for example, the Grave Creek tablet, which is supposed to right. be, you know, has this European or Asian script on it from a mound in West Virginia. All right, let's take a look at it. Well, we don't have it. It's gone. Right, right. It, it disappeared. It's, convenient. it's conveniently missing, so nobody, nobody can look at it anymore. But we do have evidence that it did exist because... As I stated earlier, we do have some colored photographs, and uh, there was an individual who was allowed to examine it. His name was Ron Callis, uh, C-A-L-A-I-S, who happens to be a creationist uh, investigator, researcher. Sure. And he was allowed to examine the object, and he was allowed to take photographs, and he was allowed to x-ray it, which the x-ray is where things get really interesting because... Again, uh, one of the links I'll put up here has a really great image of the x-ray itself. And the x-ray becomes critical in the debunking of this artifact because it clearly shows what is inside of the concretions both halves. Because remember, it's been cut in half now. So he gets both sides x-rayed and they they put the x-ray together so you can see what it looks like. Now, everyone who looked at it up to a certain point, no one could figure out what it is. And it does kind of look kind of weird. I mean, it, if uh, if I would like to implant the weird into your brain, I would say it kind of looks like a giant virus cell, if you've ever seen a virus. Right. So it's got, that, it's got that crazy little bulbous head, a really thin body, and something that looks like little circular arms and like a little spiral thing coming out of the top of it. Well, Sarah, you know, some creationists do say that everything – in the ancient past was much bigger than it is now. So everything has been sort of winding down since creation. So people are getting smaller, animals are getting smaller. Maybe that was the, the, the actual size of a virus back when this thing was made is, you know, a few inches long. Yeah, yeah, think about that. Yeah, so I mean, maybe, maybe it's a giant virus that was somehow preserved inside of a not rock sort of substance. Oh, now, after, after Mr. Callis looks at this, uh, he makes his proclamation that it looks like a metal object inside of a rock. Right. And that's kind of where he leaves it at. Uh, but we'll we'll touch on the creationist's uh, angle on this thing in a minute. It kind of lays around for a while, gets passed around. The last person known to own it, to possess it physically, was Wallace Lane, who remember is one of the three discoverers. Right. Um, he wouldn't let anybody see it, but he he did have a standing offer... Uh, up until 1999 to sell it for $25,000. There you go. That's a nice so, change for a rock with a piece of metal in it. Right. Where this gets interesting is eventually a couple of individuals get hold of this because the Koso artifact's been around. People are using it as evidence of aliens. They're using it as evidence of young earth creationism. They're using it for evidence of a lot of things that it's not. So a couple of guys get hold of it. Uh, two gentlemen by the name of Pierre Stromberg and Paul V. Heinrich. Um, they are skeptics. Right. Actual skeptics who do research into these kind of things. They have an excellent article that they wrote about their investigations into it. The best part about the investigation is when they start sending this picture, the picture of the uh, x-ray, 
around to different experts in different fields. And best part about it is when they, so they send it to a gentleman, his name's Chad Windham. He's the president of SPCA. And I'm not sure what that is, but it has something to do with old cars and stuff. Right, there you go. He thought they were joking when they first sent the picture to him because it was so obvious to him what the object was. He, so he after recognized some court, it immediately, right? Instantly. And so he thought that they were joking and they were trying to pull one over on him. And so he contacted them back and was like, hey, you know, it's not really that funny. Ha ha ha. Well, my understanding, so, what I read was that that he thought it was a joke because these guys were always pulling these kinds of pranks on one another. These guys who are interested in old pieces of machinery and old pieces of motors and that they were constantly doing this. So he saw this. He said, I know what, what are you trying to pull? So it was something right. that was common in, in, in his um, experience. So I, I just think it's funny that this thing, it's so obvious to him that, you know, he thinks it's a joke. So they finally get that worked out that it's not a joke. And uh, Windheim explains to them that under that it that this thing is a 1920s era champion spark plug, and not only does he identify it from the X-rays themselves, he sends two identical spark plugs back to the two gentlemen as comparison objects. So not only are they very identifiable, apparently they still exist in enough quantities that this guy's willing to part with two of them right. without batting an eye. So they're very common objects, even today. But that, that pretty much debunked it right there. I mean, everybody knows what it is. It's, it's a 1920s spark plug. <laughs> Done. Exactly. End of discussion. And that kind of is where I start having problems with the story from the beginning. Because now that I know that it, it truly is a spark plug, and I know that it's made out of ferrous material, and, I, and it's got copper in it somewhere too, I... I know exactly what they're looking at because I have seen ferric objects that have been left to build these concretions around them. And even a small piece of metal that has an iron content to it can create a very large shell, for lack of a better term around it, of this kind of soft material that's it's just a chemical reaction of iron with the elements. Right. And it glues things to it. Yeah, we now we back here in the, the Northeast, where when we do historical archaeology, where we are finding a lot of nails and iron spikes, yeah. that's exactly what happens. Is that you can pick up one of these things and you go, "Oh my God, what is this? It looks like a cancerous tumor growth." And what it is, it's just an old square cut nail that has, by combining with with water and other elements in the in the soil has grown this enormous concretion or tumor around it. When you x-ray yeah. them, sometimes you can see the original shape of the object, but but if you just pick it up, it can look really peculiar. And a very small object can create a very large shell. Right, sure. That That's the other thing that I, I've run into a few times. People are like, oh, why is it so big? Because the spark plug's not that big. And I'm like, it just, the, la the amount of time it's left to sit there. I mean, this thing's been sitting there since like the 20s at least. Right. You know, so, I mean, it's had a lot of time to build that shell up. It's like a pearl. It's the same process as a pearl, you. you know, and it's pulling things to it. It's picking crap up. I mean, it's, it's like glue. 
And so, yeah, a very small object can create a very large shell that doesn't look anything like the object that's inside of it. And in a relatively short amount of time under yes. the right circumstances. Yes. So, you know, I mean, you... I'm, I'm finding, na- you know, iron nails that are only a couple hundred years old that have these enormous concretions and enormous growths all around them. So the fact that this thing is encased in what appears to be a bunch of of rock, doesn't and does it has that bears no relationship at all to how long it has been in the ground. Right. Now, one of my problems with the story is knowing what concretions look like. They're they're kind of chalky usually. They're kind of whitish in color. Right. I don't feel like they resemble stone in any way, and especially when you pick them up, they don't feel like right. stone. Right. So you, my problem is, is you've got these three experienced geode hunters who come across this object. There's no way they didn't know that it wasn't a geode, yet they still kind of fed that story that it was. All right. And that bothers me because it's like, well, you know, you you know, you're lying. <laughs> but are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that maybe th- that the joke ultimately was theirs? That they said, you know, let, let's let's say this thing's a geode and see how people react to it. That maybe see, they knew. I, yeah, I like to think that maybe it was one of those kind of local joke kind of things that just got out of hand. Right. Right. And maybe that's why the thing just vanished one day maybe they're like eh i'm over it and they threw it away you know but what's what's really important about this sarah is that i mean i think we still have people who creationists who say this thing is really significant this thing really shows that typical chronologies developed by archaeologists and geologists are totally wrong yes when when the thing is very, very obviously to someone who recognizes the technology. I mean, not only does he say it's a spark plug, he can give us the year and the company that manufactured it. I mean, yeah. oh, come on. Um, and, and, and can supply them with perfect examples of exactly the same thing. So this guy's not just is- blowing smoke. He's, he's saying, oh, here you go. Here are two of them. It looks just like what you've got there. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's, at, at this point, it's, it's almost... It's it's an absurdity for anybody to start to say, well, no, I think there still might be something to it. How? Yeah, and that's and that's where the creationist angle comes back in because the creationists will completely accept that that is a 1920 spark plug without question. They're they're completely right. okay with that being a modern object. What the creationists, or at least the accounts that I have read. What they don't seem to understand is that the concretion that is formed around the object is not stone. And they seem to think that it is. And so they use that as evidence that rock can form faster than what scientists have said that it does. Because that's one of the ways that we date the Earth is by looking at the geological processes that – I'm not a geologist, so this is incredibly truncated, but – you know, that, that's one of the ways that we know how old the earth is, is because of rock. So the creationist argument is if rock can actually form in less than 100 years, then obviously the earth is younger than we think it is. But the problem is, is this, like I said, this isn't rock. It's not stone of any kind. It's a chemical, it's a chemical reaction yeah. right. that creates glue. Right. The, the lack of understanding here is seen in other U parts. That I've seen yes. 
um, what what clearly looks like it's a, an iron or steel rock hammer um, that was that had a concretion growth around it, or some some sedimentary stuff formed around the this the the, uh, the metal, and when this has been presented as clear evidence that that this is because this is rock that number one the rock hammer dates to an early period like around the time of noah's flood but that the rock obviously formed relatively quickly because noah's flood is only a few thousand years ago so it's like it's like they want it both ways they want to both show that these artifacts are much older than you and i would think they are but they also reflect a a, um, a natural process that shows that the Earth, in fact, is actually very recent. It kind of, if it hurts your head to think mm-hmm. about that, it should. Well, I've seen creationists try to use what I consider bad math right. to kind of drive home their young Earth viewpoint, doing themselves a huge disservice because it, it doesn't, since it doesn't make any sense to anyone who takes a minute to think about it, it really reflect badly on them to use that kind of an argument um also not understanding the difference between i mean i guess i can i guess i can understand how someone who's never been exposed to it could think that concretion maybe looks like rock i guess i've just seen so much of it now that i'm desensitized to it but at the same time like you said or like i said at the beginning she took this to a geologist that guy should have known right off the bat right that it wasn't a geode. Right. Okay. But they just, so just, we're to, gonna, just to clarify, oh, let's do a break and then we can, we can come back to this. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we will be right back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And and now we're back and we're still discussing the Koso artifacts. Um, You have a story you want to tell, don't you? Yeah. Well, first, first let's clarify something. So... Okay. This Koso artifact is being interpreted in two different ways. One is it's from the 1920s, but the fact that it's encased in solid rock shows that rock forms really quickly, so the earth is very recent. Yes. The other argument that I've seen also from creationists is that the Koso artifact, yes, it looks like a 1920s spark plug, but it, it reflects an, a technology that we don't expect that's out of place at a time around about Noah's flood. So that I have seen creation to say what this proves is they had internal combustion engines around about the time of Noah's flood, which throws all of archeological chronologies and historical chronologies and geological chronologies, throws them all out of whack and shows that we don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the development of technologies. Um, and that, that leads to my kind of cutesy story. 
Now, I want to preface this by saying we recognized right from the, the get-go what we at least in a general sense what had happened to the stratigraphic um, um, sequence at this site that we were excavating. So we knew right. something was amiss. But I can also tell you that anybody who is not familiar with has no very little experience digging in stratigraphic levels and keeping track of all that stuff. It was subtle enough that I don't think they would have caught it. Anyway, so we're, we're talking about a site okay. that we've got radiocarbon dates for the site of, of just shy of 2,000 years ago. This is a site in Connecticut. We okay. have the stylistically what we're picking up is a lot of ceramics of, of clay, you know, clay pots, fired clay pots, and the style of it, it's kind of thick walled, heavy grit temper, the designs all kind of plain. The the design now you're of it, you're you're talking about prehistoric pottery. We're talking about prehistoric ancient, ceramics. Ancient prehistoric ceramics. You got it. Not to be confused with historic stuff. Right. No, this is pre, this is prehistoric stuff because in fact we've got a two thousand year old radiocarbon date on charcoal next to these these pots. The design of the pots, that is the, the, the technology reflected, fits perfectly at about 2,000 years ago. We have other stuff in Connecticut and southern New England looks a lot like this. Those things have been dated, so, it's, so stylistically the date works. And we even have um, some thermoluminescent states from the sherds. It's another technique for, doing, for dating. Oh, cool. And the yeah. dates are really pretty damn close. We're looking at maybe 2200 and a 10% um, differential there is a 10% not too terrible. So we know we're at a site that's 2000 years old while right. we're digging the site and where we come down in one excavation unit to the level where we're finding all the pottery. One of my students, one of my diggers who's now had about a summer worth of digging says, Hey Kenny, I, there's something weird here. And I walk over and there's this brown shiny object at the same depth of the right. ceramics. Now, we had noticed when she began digging that there was a disturbance. That's a disturbance. There's a disturbance in the field, Luke. Right. And the disturbance <laughs> was that there was this kind of oval-shaped stain in the soil as she was digging down that looked like there had been disturbance and that the, this that, that soil had been removed and then it had, had been infilled. We weren't sure exactly what it was, but clearly it was subtle. If you weren't looking for it, if you weren't being an obsessive archaeologist, you might not have, have noticed it. Anyhow, right. this this brown shiny thing that's at the bot that seems to be within this column of disturbed soil. She mm -hmm. she removes a little more soil with her trowel. She takes her brush out, and it sure as hell looks like it's brown glass. As she's removing more of it. It's more than just a little piece of glass. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when she has it completely excavated at exactly the same level that we had found all of these 2,000-year-old artifacts, she found a brown glass beer bottle. Now, nice. that's a perfect part for an archaeologist because at least the rumor is that archaeologists like to drink a lot of beer. So <laughs> we, were kind of, we were kind of pleased at the irony. And where this bottle was found, again, at exactly the same level – where, where stratigraphically we had found 2,000-year-old ceramics, this was actually where this column opened up into what appeared to be a little bit of a den. Now, mm -hmm. now again, if, if we had not noticed that stain in the soil, if we had not noticed that it, the soil is a little bit looser, a little bit different color, we might have had our own upart to get famous with, showing that, that the Native Americans of Connecticut 
5,000 years ago, not only did they make clay pots, but they made and consumed beer out of brown glass bottles. Well, that probably wouldn't have gone over very well in any of the archaeology magazines we have here in the Northeast. And clearly, when we walked around, we talked to the farmer. The deal is this was a pasture, and the pasture was filled with woodchuck burrows. Now, woodchucks mm. here are groundhogs for people elsewhere. They probably have different names in different parts of the country. We call them woodchucks. They're big rodents. Um, they're cute little critters, but they, they dig up your gardens. They dig these holes. They dig these burrows. And this farmer told me, oh, yeah, well, because he has its pasture and he doesn't want his cows breaking a leg by falling in one of these burrows, he commonly comes around and fills them up. Poor woodchucks. And while he did not claim re responsibility in this particular case, it's, uh, it seems like a pretty good guess that some farmer uh, in the past saw this burrow, wanted to fill it up, brought his tractor out there, brought his backhoe out there, or just brought a shovel out there, had himself yeah. a nice tall bottle of beer, <laughs> threw the bottle down in the bottom of that woodchuck burrow, and then filled it up. Now, yeah. the deal here is, well, that's an oopart? I mean, it was at the level we have 2,000-year-old ceramics, if you're careful. This is why archaeologists are incredibly obsessive about maintaining their stratigraphic pro profiles. We want to know not just the depth. I, I, I rail to my students all the time. Merely because two objects are found at a particular depth does not make them old, and it doesn't make them even the same age. You have right. to look very carefully to make sure they come from the same natural or, or cultural stratigraphic level. Sites are, are dug into by, but we, we have sites, I'm sure you've encountered these, where that are multi-component sites where later residents, prehistoric people of the same spot, place, dug holes for burials, they dug holes for storage pits, they dug holes to get rid of garbage, and they encountered older stuff, which gets all then mixed up stratigraphically. So when, when somebody tells you, well, but this oopart, this object was found 20 feet deep in a coal mine, that doesn't mean anything because stuff can move around stratigraphically. Whether it's a woodchuck digging a burrow, a, a farmer digging, uh, a, digging holes for fence posts, somebody putting in a foundation, or somebody digging coal, material gets mixed around all of the time. I don't know about yeah. you, Sarah, but it's kind of one of the traditions we have here in the East is when you're done digging a site, you take a coin that has the same yeah. year date that, that where you're, when you're digging and you put it in that pit so that if some archaeologist in the future digs this up, they find that coin, they go, okay, uh, this, this site obviously was excavated previously and here's when. But can you imagine somebody unfamiliar with that finding you know, a night, a 2013 quarter at, at the bottom, uh, you know, three feet down and not realizing, well, yeah, somebody put it there in the year 2013. It's it does not date to the same period as all the other stuff in that level. And that's that's a major problem with with ooh parts is that you got folks who really aren't trained, have no experience, um, no background in keeping accurate track of exactly the associations both both um, in, in three dimensions and, you know, north, south, east, right. west, and depth. And depth, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's and I crucial. Mean, stratigraphy is very important in archaeology, and, and I don't want people to walk away from just thinking, oh, fuck stratigraphy. Uh, oh, goodness, no. I mean, <laughs> screw stratigraphy. There you Yay. go. 
vulgar language. Uh, but I do want people to understand that just because, like Ken's saying, just because we find something deep down in the hole doesn't mean that it's the age of whatever the dirt or the stratigraphy is there. Also, things are different ages. Stratigraphy is different from one side of the country to the other, and obviously from one side of the world to the other. So what's old in Connecticut is not necessarily old in uh, Wyoming, where there's their stuff's on the surface. Right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, they, they don't even have to dig for it. They just walk and pick crap up. Well, that's, you know, even here in Connecticut, if you're along the Connecticut River, which is a, a pretty sizable river, and it has, you know, before flood control especially, it's flooded regularly. And you may have to dig down several feet to get even a few thousand years ago. I dig along the Farmington River, which is a much smaller river, and its mm -hmm. rate of deposition is much less. So a, a site of a similar age may be only in the top, you know, six or eight inches. Because, right. And then if you go up into the uplands where the rate of deposition is much slower, you're basically looking at leaves falling from trees and, and decaying, where, again, you may dig a very shallow pit and be back thousands of years. So when if you read something about an upart where somebody says, yes, but we found it at a depth of 20 feet, that means absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah, it, it, unless you're, you're real familiar with the soils in that area and, I mean, like really expertly familiar with it, 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 until you show me more, that depth is not going to sell me on the age of that object. Yeah, I hate to admit it, Sarah, but I think if you were to go back to just about any of the sites I've ever excavated, you would find, and if you were to redig it, you would find all those damn lost line levels and mechanical pencils. Right. And, well, and I mean, it happens. And like, oh yeah, it happened. Well, and one of the other things that people don't understand, like you were saying that you found that burrow, right? The animal burrow. It's uh, animals tear through things, but one of the ways that we know we have an animal burrow is because, like you said, there was a a stain, a, a discoloration in the dirt itself. Right. Whereas. Believe it or not, dirt has different colors depending on how deep it goes. And and I know Ken knows this, but right, I'm explaining right, sure. this to our listeners. And so when you – and typically dirt starts off dark and it gets lighter the farther down it goes. So when you're at a depth and you start seeing a dark shape appear in your wall or your floor or anywhere, you know that something has occurred. And things like – things that happen on the scale of an archaeological dig – is going to completely change the color of the soil for many, many centimeters because we right. go deep. Right. So if I were to go out to your one of your sites and redig one of your sites, I'm probably going to know pretty quickly oh, that so this place has already been excavated just by what the soil looks I like. Th I think you will. But here's the deal. I think a lot of folks who are not at all familiar with that they, you know, they're may they won't necessarily notice right. those disturbances, right? And I'm not trying to say that after listening to this podcast, you are now all experts <laughs> yes. in dirt because you're not. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get if you listen to the to enough of these. We're not going to supply you with a junior archaeologist certificate. No, no. But, there's but no you badge can, at but, the end. But but as I said earlier, even even so, with the podcast or not, you can get little business cards <laughs> claiming That's that true. you're an archaeologist. Try to spell it, try to spell archaeology right though. It, it, that's kind of helpful. Maybe maybe we should create cards that people can buy with archaeology oh, spelled incorrectly absolutely. in it. There you go. There you go. And just save people the trouble. But coming back to the Koso artifact, um, uh, and and how you were saying the creationists 
one of the arguments the creationists use is there was advanced technology right. at the time of Noah's flood, which is the reason why I wanted to bring it up again is because that is also not the Noah's flood part, but the advanced technology in the past argument is how ancient alien theorists view the Kosovo artifact. Okay. They, they see it as evidence of advanced technology at a much earlier stage in human uh, development than uh, we give people credit. And a lot of times, of course, they're, they're associating that with the aliens who came and gave us this technology because humankind apparently can't develop anything without alien help. Yeah. That, um, and that, that includes 1920 spark plugs. But it makes it sound like that the you know the spacecraft they they travel across the universe to land on Earth, and and they've got what an internal combustion engine and goddamn it one of the spark plugs goes and there you know where's where's a hardware store when you need one a million years ago, um, right? So they just like chuck it out there and let it become a geode. Yeah, but you know what, Sarah? There actually is an an interesting and significant implication here, is that one of the things you that I've noticed is that these when it's claimed that these U parts. Are 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 technologically more advanced than the the than how they're dated. In other words, in the case of this Koso artifact, oh, it's it's ancient, but way before there were any spark plugs at all. So therefore, your your chronologies are wrong. I've never read of an upart that reflects a future technology a technology we don't already have in our history. So in other yeah. words, somebody in the 1950s, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if somebody in the 1950s claimed that they found something, they didn't know what the hell it was, and it turned out to be an Apple Watch? <laughs> no, right. They actually had Apple Watches in antiquity. But you notice that these Uparts are, you know, it's pretty lame, huh? That what, before Noah's Flood or during Noah's Flood, there was a spark plug? Well, how about an iPad? How about something really sophisticated? They never have those. They're always technologies that are from the context of the time period they're being excavated they're historical they're not anything out of the ordinary the, right. oh, the claim is though but they're found so deep it reflects a an ancient advanced civilization and it, and we've just explained how well no it, it doesn't actually so it's never right. some it's never some technology that we can't immediately identify it's merely that they're claiming well but it's older than you would expect it to be um, and another parallel that I find with the whole Upar phenomena is very similar to what we have been discussing in past shows with the Victorian era of um, fakes. There was that, that period of time where everybody was finding basically fraud pieces, but they were claiming that they were ancient ancient artifacts that are actually ancient fakes. And that was a big deal. There, there was a whole rash of them in the Victorian era, right. like mid to late Victorian era. When all of the anti antiquarians were out there digging crap up. I see a similar phenomena with the Uparts because you will never find one older than modern human tech, not modern day, but modern historical technology. And you're never going to find one that reflects future technology, right. like you were saying. You're exactly. not going to find whatever, you're not going to find an iPhone 17 in a geo because it doesn't exist. Well, how and that great would happen. that be? Come on. Well, I mean, if it still works, that'd be amazing. I don't know how we'd power it. I assume it would be <laughs> solar powered by then, or maybe just sucks power out of the air. But it's whatever. Nuclear power. It's got a little nuclear reactor inside. Totally safe. Don't don't put totally. it. But don't put it in your 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 crotch pocket because because there could be problems. Ah oh, no. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs>
But I mean, so I, I see a similar, I see a similar phenomena there sure. because it's, it's not that they're creating fakes this time, but it is finding non artifacts and trying to assign them the status of artifact. It's it's a, almost a willful misinterpretation of rock yeah. or of commonly understood and recognized historical artifacts and trying to force them into a context that that just doesn't fit a, a standard chronology. And that's yeah. a really interesting thing to try to do, but it's just it 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 it, it does not bear up under any kind of scrutiny. Okay, I want us to take a real quick break to have a word from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up our discussion of the Koso artifact. Still recording on paper in the field? Hate having to process hundreds of site records when you get back to the office and would rather go straight to report writing and research? DigTech has the answer. Hi, I'm Chris Webster, founder of DigTech LLC, a disabled veteran-owned CRM firm and archaeological technology research and development firm. At DigTech, we're creating applications for smartphones and tablets that will increase efficiency in the field and will keep archaeologists doing what they love, archaeology, and will reduce the amount of busy work in the office. Some of what we do involves enhancing existing third-party applications that are already on the app stores. Use our consultation form on the website at www.digtech-llc.com forward slash tablet, and we'll help you figure out what digital solution is best for you. The cost of going digital is a lot less than you think, and once you do it, you'll wonder why you ever recorded on paper to begin with. Contact Chris over at DigTech, the parent company of the Archaeology Podcast Network today, and let DigTech help you save paper, save time, save resources, and go digital. Now, back to the show. And we're back, and we're still talking about the coastal artifact. And Ken, you've got some interesting ideas. Yeah, here's here's the deal, folks. I mean, in a sense, Sarah, this has been a lot of fun. But, you know, doesn't it kind of piss you off a little bit that we have to spend an hour talking about a 1920 <laughs> spark plug? That clearly that's what it is, and try to, you know, convince people that, you know, this is not evidence of some superior technology uh, 5,000 years ago. And no, it doesn't show that rock forms really quickly, and so therefore the Earth is recent. But so here's, but here's, what I, here we, here's how we redeem ourselves. Um, the Coso artifact is called the Coso artifact because it was found in a little town in California. Uh, along the Coso Range, which is a mountain range. I think yes. it's the town of Olanchi. If yes. you drive about an hour, not quite an hour, south of Olanchi, you come to the Naval Air Weapons Station at China Lake. It's a million-plus acres military installation. Okay, what does that have to do with archaeology? Here's the deal. <laughs> there are four canyons in the naval on the on the grounds of the naval air weapon station that's a place by the way where they like test cruise missiles and they do bombing runs but there are parts of that million acres that are completely off limits to to military activity it's kind of a buffer zone between them and the rest of the world the base is so large they have a staff archaeologist this is nice. is uh, mike baskerville a real sweet guy and he does all the crm on the base because there's there's all these these resources there are four canyons um, in the Coso Range on this base that have the about the densest concentration of rock art you're going to find anywhere in the world. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of petroglyphs. The nice. cool thing, and in fact, it's called the Coso Rock Art Rock Art District. It is on the National Register of Historic Places, and although it's on a military base. 
you can't, you and I cannot walk up to the base, you know, talk to the guard and say, hi, we're archaeologists. We'd like to go walk around the canyons. Can't do that. But, yeah. and I'll give you, the, uh, I'll, I'll send you the link to this, Sarah. Maybe you could put it up. The Matarango, yeah. um, uh, it's a nature center, private nature center, is located in, uh, I think it's Ridgecrest, California, which is right near the, where the base is. Okay. They have a deal with the Navy. They run tours of one of the canyons, Renegade Canyon, also called Little Petroglyph Canyon. They run tours on weekends, um, not in the middle of the summer because it's way wicked hot, but other times of the year. And they have trained guides who you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork because, again, it is a secure military installation. But you fill out a bunch of paperwork. You do it in advance. There are a limited number of spots, but on the weekends, they take people out to Little Petroglyph Canyon, and then there's a, a few-hour hike. It's a pretty easy hike through the canyon where you will see thousands of real, genuine archaeological artifacts. It's amazing rock art. So the deal here is, my, my big finish is, you know, if you want to be obsessed – by the bullshit Koso artifact, <laughs> you need to find something better. And the something better is to go to California, if, you, if, if you're anywhere near, it's like about, a, I don't know, two and a half, three hours outside of Los Angeles, east and north of LA, in the desert. Um, sign up through the Matarango Museum, Nature Center, get yourself a tour and see some stuff that's just gonna blow your mind Real deal archaeology is so much more interesting than, you know, the, well, we'll call it bullshit archaeology than the bullshit that, that we end up having to discuss here. And I feel okay using the word the word bullshit because today, the day we are taping this, uh, one of baseball's managers got angry at uh, a question that a reporter asked and apparently in the three minutes dropped the F-bomb 77 times. So nice. if he can do that, I can say bullshit a couple of times. <laughs> Well, and people expect it from yeah. you, so. But, but we'll definitely, I will send you that link, Sarah, and put it up so people can contact this museum. Um, it's, I highly recommend it. Mike Baskerville actually gave me a private tour because, you know, I'm an archaeologist and I, I, can, I, can, <laughs> and sometimes, I can do that. And that sometimes yeah. that, it's worthwhile. He, he is an, an, yes, a wonderful guy really on top of his game, doing great archaeology. And I've, I felt guilty, you know, taking him away from his, his desk. And it was like, it was pretty clear he was really happy to, to be out from his office and to hike through those canyons and to that, that, and to, to see some of this rock art. It's amazing Most stuff. Most of us don't like to be stuck behind desks, yeah. so but you probably did him a favor. It's, yeah, and it's amazing stuff. It's beautiful. It's just ethereally beautiful rock art, different from anything you'll see like in Utah or, or uh, New Mexico or Arizona. It's very different kind of stuff. Um, it's, and it's kind of amazing. So go do that. That's that's your takeaway from today is if you want to see real Koso artifacts, go to the little – get a tour of Little, little Petroglyph Canyon. Yeah, no, I, I highly want I, – I want people to go look at real archaeology. I want people to go visit their mounds. I want people to go visit this the petroglyphs, so, especially yeah. if you're allowed to look at them. That That's always great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my my closing thoughts on the Kosovo artifact are that I I feel like it's disappointing. It, it's a disappointing upart. It's a disappointing artifact, fake artifact, because it's so obvious that it's not a real artifact. Yet people still to this day push for the for the Kosovo artifact to be a real artifact, and it's it's just it's not. And <laughs> it's not go. evidence. It's not evidence of aliens. It's not evidence of a global flood. It's it's 
it's not evidence of, of anything other than natural processes at work. I mean, if anything, it confirms the whole idea of, of natural processes on the earth because it is a chemical reaction between ferric material, materials that have iron in them, and the, the, the soil and the, the uh, matrices around them. It, it, it creates that... I, I that concretion. I mean, it's it's once you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Right. But until you see it, you you really don't have. It's hard to explain because it can be chalky and it can be kind of brown. I mean, it can be a lot of things. There's a reason why we call them rusty potatoes because they look like <laughs> rusty potatoes. I mean, so until you see these things, it's it's hard to put it into context. But once you've seen it, you don't ever unsee it. Right. So maybe another thing to encourage people to do is I don't know, take some take some iron nails. It's uh, Go buy some iron nails, find a spot in your backyard, bury them like, you know, a foot in the ground, forget about them for a year, maybe two years, and then go back and see what they look like. You know, I mean, this stuff can grow pretty quick. Right. So yeah, don't, don't, don't put like stainless steel. That's not going to work. But anything. No, that's, that's not going to work. It's got to be iron. Yeah. In fact, you know, if you go, you can find these, these like um, uh, replica old uh, square cut nails they're machine made now but you know, right. if you have an old house and you want to put they look like little little spikes is what they look like and those when they make those and they're just you know nothing but iron stick those in the ground and you'll see what we're talking about rust and the development of it doesn't just disappear stuff actually begins to grow on top of it and it's yeah, a chemical yeah. reaction and um it really doesn't <laughs> doesn't mean much else beyond that all right, so those those were your finishing, those were your final thoughts on the Coso artifact. Absolutely. All right, well, so well, the, less the lesson about, the less said about the Coso artifact, the better. You know, I you think that, but this is the Coso artifact is like one of the number one posts that get read on my blog. Is that right? Which tells me that there are people out there who are very interested in it and continue to be interested in it. So yeah, as much as I find it to be disappointing and right. there's absolutely nothing to it that we see, there are people out there who are interested in it. And I, I want to give them as much resources as they can have. To, right. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, 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 it's all fine, but it is, it is kind of sad. If, I mean, if you're a believer, if this is the best you've got, you go, you got to find something a little more interesting, you know, if you're right. a believer in, in um, some kind of paranormal or or religious significance, the Koso artifact. Yeah, this is this is not a good argument. It just in case you were someone who fits into those categories and was thinking of using it, don't don't use the Koso artifact. Yeah. It's not a good. F find something better. Find something better. Maybe look for Bigfoot right. or something like that. All right, Ken. Thank you very much. You're and welcome. I hope you have a good evening. Fun. You betcha. Ranger trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. If you like this show or other shows that you listen to on the Archaeology Podcasting Network, please consider volunteering your time to help us edit these shows. We are currently in need of individuals with editing skills who can help us put together these shows and keep to our rigorous publishing schedule. If you think you have what it takes to help us edit and keep these shows on the air, email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Let us know that you're interested in helping us edit and give back a little to the podcasting network that you've grown to love. 
No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com